Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. I am being joined by Sally K. Norton, and we are going to wrap up our mini-series on oxalates. We're going to jump right in and get to it. Sally, welcome back. Thank you. It's fun to be back to you. Oh, it's been a great, great time. I'm looking forward to wrapping this up. You know what I I love about this, this whole mini-series thing? I've followed you for a while. I met you. I read the book. I've learned a lot. But this whole experience of recording this has really kind of kind of cemented things in my mind, things that before I kind of thought I knew, but I'd have to go look up to be sure. Now I feel like I really know this topic. I think this whole miniseries has helped me. Yeah. If you want to teach something or understand it, you know, try to sort of share it with other people, and that helps you to really get your head around a topic. You know, I... Uh, It's interesting you brought that up because I've been a big proponent of that for a long, long time. If you want to learn something, teach it. And then people say, well, wait, how how can you teach it if you don't learn it? Well, there's usually a way, a book, (laughs) a tutorial, something, and and just start teaching it. I learned this myself in basic training in the Army. You know, you go to basic training, it's like they try to make you forget everything you know and you have to learn everything all over again. And you have to learn a bunch of new stuff, like all the ranks, and there's just a lot going on. You have to learn how to, you know, tear your weapon apart and clean it, put it back together in three minutes out in the dirt. You got to learn how to give CPR. You got to learn all the, the, you know, hazmat stuff with gas masks. And, and it's a short period of time. There's a lot going on, and you've got to learn a lot. And pretty good at learning, but I was feeling a little overwhelmed, and I'm competitive. So I wanted to, you know, do as good as possible. And I realized, and, and it happened by accident. One of the things I was struggling with was the CPR. And I'm not sure why it just wasn't clicking with me with all the other stuff going on. And then one day, just out of the blue, I got assigned to run that station to kind of teach that station with CPR. That's all it took like 30 minutes of that. And I had it all figured out and it clicked with me that that was just a really good way to learn, to force yourself to try to explain it or teach it to somebody else. Yeah. It, it just engages a whole different part of your brain, you know, and I, we, we really are a social animal. And yeah. so that social process of information is so how we preserve and develop information really. So, you know, that one little incident is kind of how I ended up doing what I do. I, you know, now, as soon as I learn something new, I go share it with somebody else. Yeah. And then they ask hard questions and you're like, hmm, let me go go figure that out. Right. (laughs) I better go do a little more reading. Yeah. And in in this case, it'll be, oh, not sure. Let me call Sally. Yeah, and that's really why, you know, I in my career, I've pretty much been wanting to hang out in academia and do this sort of public health side of things where you're not working one-on-one in a clinical setting with people and telling them how to live their lives. I never wanted to tell a specific person you should or should not do right. such and such a thing. Right. It's always been about guidelines. You're an out, but, but when I realized that I needed to understand the oxalates and was really wanting to know how the heck they could have wrecked my own health and knew that everyone in my situation was without any, anyone who would tip them off that this is a possibility. So you could be in my terrible situation of doing everything right, 
living the perfect life, being a goody two-shoes, eating perfectly, <laughs> and feeling sick. <laughs> right. And nobody can say, hey, it's your stupid healthy diet. That's the problem. So I knew I had to get this message out for, I knew there had to be another Sally out there who's hurting herself on her sweet potatoes. And I just didn't realize that probably one in four human beings are hurting themselves with their oxalates in their diet. Yeah. But I, I got, I decided right away that I needed to help people individually because A, they're asking me to, and B, this is how I'm really going to get my clinical chops. This is how I'm going to really start understanding this topic, learning through other people's experience and helping them and hearing their experience with oxalates has really, really, really made my understanding of what I'm reading in the science makes sense. And we use the reality of Valley and 10,000 other people who go to the literature for an explanation. So we don't tell reality, well, science says this, therefore that can't be happening. No, no, no. We <laughs> ask reality, this happened? I wonder why that happened. There and then we go. ask science, why did that happen? And so that's a whole new brave world to do old-fashioned science of looking at reality. Hey, this happened to Sally or XYZ person. What does the science say about how that could be what's going on there? Unfortunately, what you're getting when you go to the doctor is, hey, my training says that's probably not a thing, so it's not a thing. <laughs> or no one ever told me that before, so therefore that doesn't it's, exist. Exactly. Yeah, how many times, especially with doctors in the medical field, do you just run into that, that, that if they don't know about it, if they've never heard about it, then it can't be a concern? Yes, and that's a very tricky world, yeah, because is. they've deliberately now, they're changing the whole diagnosis. What's possible to be diagnosed with is based on what we have a drug or procedure for. Yeah. If we don't have a drug or procedure for it, it's not an important diagnosis, not something we're going to worry about. As far as I know, there's no anti-oxalate drug, right? And there's not going to be. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so therefore, it's not going to be popular in this sort of profit-oriented world we're in now with healthcare. So anyway, you know, I feel strongly that it's through reality that we really learn things, and that's been this process of working directly with people. So I've been teaching and supporting both sides, clinically, individual people, and getting the science straightened out and trying to share that. And that, that has been quite an eye-opening experience. I'll bet. All right. So one of the things I want to talk about um, as we kind of wrap this up, this idea, I've always kind of been fascinated with it ever since I started kind of researching nutrition and food and diets. I am a total believer in we need to eat the way our hunter-gatherer ancestors did. It just, it just makes sense. We ate that way for so, so many years. We evolved that way. Our gut bacteria evolved that way. It makes sense. But then the argument becomes, what did our hunter-gatherer ancestors really eat? And there seems to be a lot of argument between did they eat a lot of plant food? Did they eat a lot of animal foods? What was their diet? Did it really vary that much around the world? Obviously, it varied by different species or plants, but, you know, did we, did most human beings eat mostly animal products or did they mostly eat plant products or just a good mix of the two? And in the beginning, my beginning, I guess, eight or nine years ago when I started down this path, 
there were a lot of people pushing paleo and keto diets that were really plant heavy. Still a few of them around. I mean, I've mm-hmm. had a few people on my show. Dr. Will Cole does a, I think he calls it ketotarian. It's a very, it's a high fat keto diet, but mostly plant-based. Um, there's a couple others that are, are still pretty heavy on the plant-based, but a lot of people, a lot of the early adopters, I'm thinking like Mark Sisson, um, some of the others that were big on a mix, you know, a good mix of animal products and, and plant products. And I remember- And giant salads. Mark Sisson <laughs> would always talk about his big-ass salad, Mark had a whole right? refrigerator devoted he, to his salad. <laughs> right. He called him his big-ass salad and he made it. And you know what? I love big salads. I love salads like that with all kinds of stuff in them. Throw some meat on them, some salmon, something like that. It's refreshing. It's satisfying. But I don't do that much anymore. Almost never. And I've seen that that shift. A lot of people have made that shift. So then you start to question, what was our diet? And I thought about this. I've read a lot. I've actually talked about the TV show alone. Have you and I talked about that on this show? Alone? I don't remember talking about alone. We did talk about how if you go out in nature, it's going to be a long time before you find a salad there. (laughs) Salad, try to find a piece of broccoli. I mean, if you lived on on a Caribbean island, I've never seen any romaine lettuce on a Caribbean island, and I, and I don't see it in the forests, and you don't see it in Ever. Sweden or Ever. Alaska or Texas. Right. Ever. I, so I, probably Mark's salad would not be considered a <laughs> you know, primal true. paleo kind of dining experience. I mean, it, it required his very fancy refrigerator. Correct. Yeah, and and it required a grocery store that gets things shipped from all over the world, not just the country anymore. Yeah. Our produce section is stocked from the world. We didn't have access to those things. Think about a hunter-gatherer. How much could they travel? Maybe a hundred miles? You know, in their whole lifetime, sometimes they might not travel farther than that. Well... And if you stuck it in your leather satchel on your horse or whatever you got around on, I mean, how long would that lettuce really taste <laughs> edible? No, it needs to be cold and fresh and it, hydrated. If you have a garden, by the time you've cut your vegetables in your little basket and you walk them in the house and you put away your gloves and, and knife, you get in the kitchen, they're, they're already wilting. They start to wilt. You wilting. are exactly right. They, they start to wilt. Yeah. It's not the crispy, like, Caesar salad experience that right. we love. We love the crunch, the moisture, the texture, the colors, the chewing. But lettuce hanging out in nature is kind of <laughs> halfway blanched, you know, because it's wilted. Right, right. You know, or this, you know, I, I can remember when I was growing a lot of broccoli. And honestly, you know, steamed broccoli, it's just not all that appetizing. It's okay. I'm not going to get too excited about it. Honestly, butter. If Seriously, it, to be edible, if without salt and butter, you're not going to eat it. I go a step further. It needs a ton of butter, good butter, good salt, and some Parmesan <laughs> cheese. And now I get excited about it. But take those things away. I'm yeah. not going to bother growing it, much less walk out there and cut it down and try to eat it. It's not worth it. Yeah. And, yeah. 
And, you know, yeah, so, you know, and the produce department exists back in the paleo days. There is almost nothing in the grocery store that existed pre-agricultural technologies. We, we invented corn on the cob. Right. We invented the modern tomato. We invented all the potato varieties. We invented the entire cabbage family. We invented the carrot. We, it's all technology. So what we consider plant foods, we basically invented. Which and we developed to... strains yeah. of various grains as well. We've been developing rice and wheat grains for a very long time, 10,000 years or so. Yeah. But none of them are just hanging out in fields of waving <laughs> fields of grain waiting to be turned into bread. I mean, the native Indians here, they would put their canoes, go down the streams and rivers and knock the wild rice into the boat and collect wild rices. They did that for a long time and they developed corn and did things with the the plant foods, but they're very specific technologies. You certainly had to have a boat technology to even do the gathering of the wild rice. Well, and, and have you ever watched how much work they put into corn? Oh, man, I've not done it myself. <laughs> no, but, I haven't either, and I don't but, want to. By the time you're done, you'll be so hungry, I'm going to have to eat half a bison to make up for all the work I put in on the corn. But just when you get to the stage of nixomizing, you know, and liming it and process getting it ready to actually prepare, same with acorns, you have to put them in your basket in the river for a week and let the... <laughs> The river pull pull a lot of the tannins out of right. the, out of the acorns. You have to soak them and do all these things, and and that's doable. You know, if you're hanging out by the river a lot and watching your acorns, but it's, it's not that practical if you're going to be mobile. It's not even that practical if I want something that I really enjoy eating. After all this work, after all this work, none of this food is all that appetizing. <laughs> 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 I, True enough. If you throw any kind of animal on a barbecue pit, <laughs> that's it. That's all it it's takes. It's appetizing. Yeah. Or you dig a hole in the ground and you smoke or you holes in a hole and sit it in there for a day and let it molder in the ground. It's going to be delicious. It is. It is. What a difference. So, you know, so I want to talk about this TV show alone. It's one of those reality TV shows. I think it's on like its 12th or 13th season. There's nothing, it's not on right now. I'm waiting to see when another season will come out. I will say it's not the greatest show ever to watch. It's like an hour long. It's a little slow sometimes. So a lot of times I'll even watch it while I'm, you know, maybe working or doing something else, kind of have it on in the background. But the more I watched it, the more I really got interested in it. So the premise is, They take them to a pretty remote area. Starts with 10 people. They take them to a pretty remote area. A lot of it has been in the Pacific Northwest, up into Canada. And so they separate the 10 of them. So there's over a big area. So there's no way they will ever run into each other. And they get to take 10 items. There's a list of items they're allowed to choose from. And they can take 10 of those. And it's things like a As far as a weapon, you could take a simple bow, but not a compound bow. You can take tarps and knives. You can't take any kind of food at all. That's not on the list at all. No food items. You have these things to to choose from. You could either take a tent or you could take a tarp and make one, or you can just decide, I'm pretty good at, you know, building a shelter out in the woods. I'll do that. So it's interesting to see which 10 items people pick. 
Then the premise is they take you out there with your 10 items. They drop you off. They give you all kinds of camera gear because you have to film all of this yourself. There's nobody out there with you. There are no camera people around. There's no crews. You have, wow. a, you have a satellite phone. And if you have an emergency, you have to tap out and they come get you in a helicopter because you're, you're out there. There's nobody around. They call it a loan. And the, the premise of the show is who can live the longest? The last person alive out there that doesn't tap out wins. Each season is like a half a million dollar prize. On season 10, they threw in a twist. Not only did you have to be the last one out there, but you had to make it past 100 days, and it was winner. And that one, they won a million dollars. It was pretty incredible. The, the guy that won that one killed a musk ox with a knife. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's real hunter-gatherer stuff there. He shot it with a bow first, but remember, this is a simple bow, not a compound bow. So all it really did to the muskox was piss it off. It was just, you know, stomping around with an arrow in its side, mad. Then he got behind wow. it and jumped on it and wrapped his arms around his neck and slit its throat with a knife. He won, by the way. <laughs> and he probably doesn't have a lot of that on film. How could he put that on film? I don't know. Actually, quite a bit of it. That. Quite a bit of it was. He had the camera all put set up. Put the camera before. in a tree. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty incredible. He got a lot of it on film. It was pretty interesting to watch. But I, you know, you watch wow. the. Some people show up, and clearly, you know, they're going to be hunters, and they tend to be the men. And there are women who compete. I don't think a woman's won it yet. They tend to be more gatherers. Now, there have been some women with some really killer hunting skills. They were good. But women tend, in general, to depend more on gathering. They don't make it. They get weaker and weaker and weaker over time, and, and pretty soon they're just out. You know, and at, at a certain point, it's always kind of sad because at a certain point, they almost realize they need animal products, and it's too late. You know, they, they say, boy, I should have been focusing more on fish. They actually or, go into this. Thinking they can gather stuff? That's, what is this, fishing and berries? or That's what it seems what? like. What are they yeah. gathering? Well, they're gathering like greens and roots and berries. And yeah, you see them, they're starving. They're wandering around for hours and hours and hours getting tiny little amounts of food. Yeah. Yep. It, and then... You see yeah. them, some of the women, again, maybe they're not into hunting down a musk ox and jumping on its back, but some of them were really, really good at snares. And um, I think one used a slingshot was pretty good one year. I've seen a couple good with bows. And they'll take down, you know, snowshoe hares, squirrels, which is plenty. I mean, beaver, I've seen, um, that's actually a pretty nice find, lots of fat. As long as they're getting animals, they're fine. The minute they stop you getting pretty much animals, need one of those small rodents every day, minimum. Yeah, that, that is true. Right. And as long as they're doing that or catching a, you know, a decent sized fish every couple of days, they're just fine. They may be hungry, but they're, they're doing fine. They're not weak. They're not tired. They go two or three days without getting an animal and things start to look bad. You see them start to get weak. And now if you're weak, it's harder to hunt and you're alone. One of the things I think this proves, it, it's really, really difficult for a human being to live in the wild alone. We're not meant to be alone, that's for sure. 
Yeah. You know, it's, some of it is the psychological, yeah. the company, but I also think it's the work. As human beings, we don't, the work. there's too much to do for one person to be able to do it all and survive. And you see these people come in, they have incredible skills. The, the, the shelters they build. And I watched one guy string up his own fishing net from string. He made a fishing mm-hmm. net from string. It was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. But you, you see, they would not make it on their own. None of them, no matter how good their skills are. The guy who made it to 100 days, it was, it was rough. That's 100 days. It's not even a third of a year. Well, it's hunting parties that go out to hunt. It's yeah. groups of people that go hunting. It's groups of people who, who gather. It's groups of people who prepare food for preparation. And we always eat in company. It's, a, yeah. it's abnormal to even eat alone, let alone to gather your food alone. Yeah. I think and food that, is probably the big reason why we right. can't live alone. No, I think it is. Let alone the fact that we're not very different. We don't have a lot of innate defenses. We're very vulnerable. We don't have claws and teeth. We don't run that fast. Uh, (laughs) Right. We don't climb that fast. We don't swim that fast. Like a lot of other critters could just make a meal out of us pretty quickly. We need our group. You know, some people need to be night owls to stay up and watch, be the sentry at night. Like even sleeping is safer in, in a group. Did you read the book? I think it's Living Wild. Two authors, I can't remember the guy's name. You you should go look this up. So Living Wild, there were a couple of concepts that I learned from that book that were really interesting, and you just kind of touched on them. Um, One was the sleeping. And they did this whole piece on how when you look at um, our sleep cycles through our life, babies sleep a lot, you know, during the day, during the night, they're up they're down there. They just have crazy sleep schedules. Infants do. Then we look at, you know, children and their sleep schedules. Then we look at teenagers for some reason during your teen years, they're just radical sleep. They go to bed at three in the morning and stay in bed till afternoon. Old people don't sleep as much and they tend to have a different sleep schedule. Their whole premise was that that we evolved that way because of what you just said. We always had somebody awake. When you lived in a big enough group and you had all these different schedules, there was always somebody awake. It's also why we did so well with wolves as dogs, as pets. They were great protection while we right. slept. Right. And they're very helpful with hunting. And they right. can survive on the lean meat. And we prefer the organs and the fat. And the very lean meat with large game is less essential to us. And we can easily give that to the wolves slash dogs. Dogs love us. The dogs protect us. The dogs help us gather our prey. If you half shoot your wild beast and you're not sure if it's going to kill you back, just send your dog after it and see if it kills the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Very useful. I had a friend who literally did that with his pet dog. He shot, he shot a bear. He was in a rented hunting cabin. He had one or two deer carcasses hanging. The bear came along and started eating his deer carcass. So out of the window of the cabin, because he had the license, it was in season, he shot the bear. But the bear just kind of went away bleeding. And then after about 45 minutes, he sent his little dog out, his small (laughs) pet dog. The dog followed the trail of blood. And lo and behold, the bear had died or he was able to get to the bear and finish off the bear. 
You know, but he used the dog to make sure the bear wasn't going to kill him. I was surprised at how good dogs are against bears. I did a pack trip out in Wyoming, and it was grizzly country. And, you know, they took a couple dogs with us. Not big dogs, not ferocious dogs. These were just dogs, you know, farm dogs and ranch dogs. And they came with us. They are so good. They are not afraid of the bears at all. In fact, I think the bears are more afraid of them. Uh, it was pretty shocking how good the, uh, the, the dogs were uh, with the bears. So that was one concept, that concept of sleep. The other one that I thought was just um, incredible was persistence hunting. They, they covered that. So they, they talked about these tribes where they would send two or three or four runners after an animal like a gazelle, you know, something that can run really, really fast. There was no chance we'd ever catch them. But all they do is they just keep running. They separate one from the herd and they just keep running. And, and humans can run a long time. We have people that run 100-mile races. You know, I think the world record right now is held by somebody who's keto. Zach Bitters, I think, did like, um, did 100 miles in just over 12 hours. Really, Zach did that. Yeah, incredible. Mm. So they would actually hunt this way. Even though that animal can easily outrun them, it can only do it so many times. And then it stops and they would just keep running and they'd get close to it again. And it would rest and it would take off running again. And they just keep doing this. And it might take them 10 or 12 hours, but they'd eventually kill the animal. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sometimes the animal would just die of a heart attack. Humans and their love for dogs, man's best friend, and their various hunting skills. Really, I mean, it's been a part of human survival since the dawn of humanity, really. The need for animals to... So I live off of basically. Yeah, absolutely. So I was just thinking if somebody tunes into this as their first episode, we said we were going to talk about oxalates and we've been talking about Mm -hmm. hunting and gathering and, and why is that? Because I want to get across to people that I don't believe. And I think you probably agree with me on this, that, that plant food was never meant to be our primary food. I think plants may be medicine. There are some pretty powerful plants we can use as medicine. I think plants can be emergency food when you absolutely, there's just nothing else to eat and you need to survive. I'm not going to worry too much about oxalates and phytates and lectins at that point. I'm worried about survival. But for the most part, I really think that healthy human beings, their, their primary diet is animal products. That definitely makes the most sense. You know, that's the logical thing that we came from a pre a pre technology era, just us in the wilderness, and animal foods are the primary source of calories. Whether it's in Alaska in the northern climes where you have long winters, long cold winters where plants don't do very well, and or you've got tropical areas where you're surviving on an awful lot of seafood. Primarily, you know, and other wild birds and animals. You know, and I do yeah. believe as, as hunter-gatherers, I remember there was a, another book series I read called The People Of, and there were so many books, I, I lost track of it, like 30-some. Um, mm. It's written by a husband and wife team. They're anthropologists or one of those scientists that studies that kind of stuff. 
And they talked about the different tribes in the United States. They have a whole series, like the people of the corn, the people of the rivers, the people of the Great Lakes, the people of the plains. And they were really describing these different tribes that had settled in these areas. And it was interesting to see. That sounds so interesting. I would love that. Yeah, it's um, um, Michael W. Gear. G-E-A-R, what's his wife's name? I forget. Michael and I don't remember. They must have a zillion books, but the one series is called The People Of, and it was really interesting. So they, it, it's told as factual as can be based on all their research, but they're novels. So their stories, really good books. They're both really good writers. And then it's interesting because of all the you know, the, the historical facts that are put into it. But one of the things I thought was really interesting, they compared the lifespan of the, the tribes in the plains, like the Northwest Plains, Wyoming, Montana, pretty severe weather. They compared the lifespan to Florida. And the tribes in Florida live significantly longer. Their diet was primarily fish and fruit. There'd be a lot of both of those in Florida. But they were certainly not vegans or vegetarians or anything else. They ate a lot of animals. Whereas in the plains, they ate, you know, animals almost primarily, which that wasn't the issue. It was really the the weather and the lifestyle that created the shorter lifespan. Yeah, the less vitamin D. Yeah, interesting. There's probably lots of different factors there. But the fish, I'm a big fan of fish. I think human beings... I've always been attracted to water, and we've always settled near water. We, we love a water view. And so I think seafood has been, and seafood is an example of something that even an eight-year-old can gather. You can yeah. pick up oysters yes. and clams and shellfish and water worms and eel. I mean, you can just grab them with your bare hands. You don't need a lot of skill and talent. And teenagers have a lot of patience and <laughs> Stuff for like cracking open oysters and figuring out how to do all that. So, yeah, you know, th- that's a kind of gather hunting. It's a, a gathering style hunting of living on shellfish. That's pretty easy to do. And they say, according to an article I read in the New York Times, it was a Thanksgiving article years ago, saying that the rivers in the U.S. were so full of eel, you could practically walk across the bodies of water. And the first Thanksgiving obviously had a lot of eel on the menu, which we don't do now at Thanksgiving because it's a commercial holiday. But yeah, right. I found that really interesting. I, I, <laughs> of course, I, if it's just that teeming with life, you're going to eat that stuff. Exactly. I've eaten eel. I like eel. I actually, I live right on the Columbia Delicious. River. We have, we have eels in the Columbia River called lampreys, I think was the name. Uh-huh. And they have these. Yeah. So... At the Columbia River Dam, the the salmon have to be able to get past the dam, so they build these fish ladders, and it's just a way for the salmon to keep jumping up the ladder until they get past the dam. And then if you go under the dam, the visitor center, you can go down there, and they have glass windows that are underwater, so you can watch all these salmon swimming by. Pretty interesting. They actually, they actually mm-hmm. count them all, too, which mm-hmm. is insane. Somebody sits there all day long and counts. But these eel, these lampreys, their mouths are like suction cups and they'll attach themselves by their mouth to the glass. And I think that's how they rest because right. they don't have to fight the current, but they're bizarre. You can oh. see they have little teeth and everything. Um, but I, I, I've right. eaten eel. 
And I, I'm with you. Seafood, I can eat almost anything that comes out of the ocean. I don't think I've found anything that comes out of the water that I don't like. Um, so I, I'm a, a big fan of seafood. And, and I think when you look historically, we did tend to settle around water. And there was a lot of good reasons for it. Yeah, yeah, it's really critical to our survival. So I, I do think that longevity-wise and brain function-wise and all that, that the, the fats in fish are really good for us. Now, fish is kind of low-fat. So, you know, also including, like, the pork. Pork is very popular in Asia, Japan, that, you know, the eastern Atlantic coast of the U.S., pork has been a big, important food. Pork was critical to the, the col- colonial settlers here in the colonial England yeah. colonies that we were originally. You know, the, like the founding fathers, Patrick Henry and George Washington and everybody, they all grew up on ham. They were living heavily on ham and pork because it was the meat that they could preserve easily. It would it would keep in the salt houses. It wouldn't spoil as fast as other meats would. So I think you would have venison and you would have a big dinner party and use it up. But with the pork, you could keep it in the smokehouse and in the salt house. And yeah, it would last. That's, that's how we got bacon. More than a year. I mean, you can keep pork for a long time. <laughs> right. So people nowadays are afraid of pork and afraid of animal fats. But apparently they ran some of the, the lighthouses on, on pig fat on the Outer Banks I of North Carolina. It. I can so, believe it. But this has been a part of our immediate history, too, not just 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 years That's ago. A good point. But even in the last 300 years, these foods, both seafood and pork and, and venison and bison, were really critical to life here in North America. I'm pretty sure that whole yeah. pork thing is where we got the phrase, praise the lard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very it's very versatile, delicious, and and makes you happy. I literally think that happiness is built on animal fat. I agree. If you're depressed, you're probably not eating enough lard and butter. That's my feeling. And there just isn't any in lettuce. So Mark can have his salads, <laughs> although I really tone back on them. He has. You and he I has. will have. Eel appetizer with a big roast pork and maybe some venison for dessert. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, yeah. like, I like that idea. And, you know, they all grill really easily, too. I grilled um, squid. I had two pounds of squid. I lightly marinated them with some pepper flakes and a little, little tiny bit of olive oil. And they roast, they grilled beautifully. I was surprised how well they grilled. And then I cut them up and they were reminiscent of a thick kind of like a white noodle. So yeah. you could even convince Sid to eat squid because it's very mild. And on the grill, it came out fairly tender, but still chewable, you know, really slightly chewy Yeah, and very mild. So you know, there's a lot of versatility there with the seafood and with meats and with eggs. And they're also pretty agreeable to children, whereas children Generally, you give them spinach and they're like, are you kidding? No way, I'm not eating that. <laughs> you the know, biggest arguments with parents and children are, are vegetables. the vegetables. Should... Who's going to make me eat vegetables? Why didn't we all figure it out based on that alone? No, no kid ever liked vegetables. I mean, we know it. It's all over. It's been all over our society forever. You got to force kids to eat vegetables. Maybe that should have been a clue. 
Yeah, well, clue us in, but we have these stronger cultural messages that have been around for a good 400 years that somehow put vegetables on a ethical plane that yeah. that's more pure than eating meat in the minds of philosophers. So we talked about, you know, the survival, the poor guy alone out in the wilderness, having good skills for making nets and knowing how to gather and hunt animal foods and how critical that is. So that's somebody who's attuned to their environment, who's living in their environment and making the most of it. Whereas then we had these class developments in in sedentary society, agriculturally based society, you get all your income comes from the production basically of agriculture. Agriculture is a key feature of of economies of society. But the way you do this is you now layer your society of governance layers and you have the priest layers and you have the educators and the, the learned ones and you have the, the technical people and then you have the drones doing the work and building your pyramids and storing your grain and cooking it up for you. And so you've got these people who are now extracted from the realities of production, of the realities of of how we really feed ourselves, having philosophical ideas about how, you know, all this hierarchical society we have, that's not right. We should have more of a meritocracy. We should have fairness. We should get rid of kings and queens. And so the same philosophers who said we should get rid of the king and overthrow the king and it led to the American Revolution and so on, were also talking about, you know, moral living and fairness. And somehow they included at some point you shouldn't need other animals as part of this better morality. Like you can do it from the, the silk couch in your velveteen trousers. You can have these thoughts. <laughs> yeah. But wasn't, and now you're influencing the culture forevermore about what's moral and what isn't. Wasn't Kellogg big on that whole moral issue with meat? Yeah, poor Kellogg. He, he grew up under the tutelage of the founders of Seventh-day Adventists. Ellen G. White and her husband. Ellen G. White was the big founder of Seventh-day Adventists, and she wrote all kinds of interesting things, including books about how you should raise your kids in ways where they don't touch their parts, their genitalia, because that will send you to hell. Any masturbation will send you to hell. And he read all this stuff about how evil it is to touch yourself, how evil sex is, and this kind of thing, as a 12-year-old, because he was setting the type. He worked for their press, and he set the type of their book. Got it. So he remained pretty much celibate. So, he got married and they, they adopted all their children. They did not have sex. And he was very, that was his goal is to follow that teaching in Seventh-day Adventists. We're going to keep the carnal tendencies to, to want to touch yourself or have sex so, for fun. We're going to eliminate all that by keeping you off carnal foods and, and have you eat vegetarian foods. So he was developed, he developed this big spa. All the fancy people came, President Taft, and all the thinkers came to this fancy club. It was in Battle Creek. And learned to eat Battle Creek, Michigan. That's really the the home of processed foods. (laughs) He and his brother sort of developed the whole cornflake answer to eggs and bacon. We're not going to let you have your eggs and and ham steak for breakfast anymore because you might touch yourself. Instead, you're going to have this dehydrated corn and they started learning how to smash up nuts and they sort of developed the peanut butter thing and these fake meats based on smashed nuts and being fashionable to spend a lot of money to be fed 
cornflakes and that kind of like empty food brand and this kind of thing. So it was quite fashionable actually since the early 1800s. There was a whole fad about eating bran and Graham who was doing this and Alcott, the Alcott cousins. And, you know, it was really interesting. All the cool cats were learning to be the vegetarian society started in something like 1850. So this whole idea of plant-based came out of reform, religious reform primarily and, and setting God like for you to be godly and not beat your wife and not be an alcoholic and to be a proper citizen, you shouldn't um, sexual thoughts and so you shouldn't eat meat. So this got really tied in with moralism in many different layers of society. Got it. You know, as you're talking about this and I'm thinking about it, they weren't wrong in their premise. They were just wrong in the big <laughs> picture because if you think about it, the healthier we are, the stronger our sex drive is. Isn't it one of the clear yeah. indicators of health is good reproductive health, good strong sex drive, and the ability to create children, right? That's like one of the hallmarks Absolutely. of good health. That's the vitality of, that's life perpetuating itself. That's life's whole point is to be as robust as it can and keep itself going forward. And what we're trying to do with these cultural ideas is cut off life itself, cut off healthy health, cut off healthy reproduction. Yeah. And so I think, you know, like the tantric sex idea is much more a healthy approach. Like, okay, so we want to see sex as a way to get closer to God, not a way to be immoral. Yeah. And we should have convinced people to eat more meat and eggs and have eight kids. Yeah, and have healthy children. And right. the thing is, with when you're eating healthy and you're really living the way humans live, there was a natural spacing of the birth order too. So there's enough time for the nutritional recovery of the mother's body. You weren't stacking baby yeah. on baby and baby. You weren't pregnant while breastfeeding or any of that stuff. There was a natural uh, three-year spacing that gives you healthy children. Yeah, I don't think any had anybody had octuplets back then either without all kinds of crazy fertility drugs. The octuple, I don't even know if that's the right yeah, word. Quintuplets, yeah. all the, you know, multiple births we have. Multiple births. Yeah. yeah. And, Not, and scheduled scheduled deliveries oh, and all yeah. the things we're doing now. Uh, to scheduled cesareans. There's a lot of trouble now with fertility. Yeah. The fact that so many people are now reaching for these kinds of facilitated reproduction is really concerning. It's evidence of our being damaged with toxins and nutrient problems. Yeah. So after, after this. And we have more access to plants than we've ever had. We have the grocery store, we have the trucking industry bringing us produce from all over the world. We've we've got more access to plant foods and healthy, fresh, quote, healthy, fresh foods. And it's not being reflected in the quality of our lives and the quality of our health. Not at all. At all. We are suffering more than ever. So, so there, there's no good argument just on the surface that plants are an important part of the diet. Yeah, I agree. Two things I got out of that conversation. One, I have an idea for a new podcast. How's, wow. How's this for a title? Oxalates and philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Then, well, I do think there's a, I do think there's a whole 
conversation to have about the spirituality of food and, and how religious ideas have have in some ways damaged our ability to think straight about food. Yeah, I, I agree. The food that kept us alive made us what we are today, eating animals and then cooking animals. And um, without it, I'm not sure we would have survived as a species. And now we try to claim that it's just bad. It's just, it's so screwed up. Well, and the fact that we're receptive to the idea that the food we've always eaten as a species is suddenly causing disease shows, you know, a real failing in our education system that no one can think for themselves. That You can shovel concepts that have no logical basis. I mean, you cannot (laughs) twist any kind of real logic and come up with that, agreeing to that idea. And yet people with PhDs, people at every level of society are all seeing that somehow meat is causing modern disease. It absolutely, completely violates the basic logic of a five-year-old. And five-year-olds aren't even logical. <laughs> it makes no that's, sense. That's right. Yeah, that's right. The other thing I got out of this, uh, and you were just talking about this, this idea of superfoods. You know, that term is fairly recent. Um, and superfoods always seem to be some plant that comes from somewhere else in the world. If this is some superfood, I would, yeah, I, I would have never had, thing. Yeah, I would have never <laughs> had access to this. If this is so important to my health, why isn't it everywhere <laughs> on the planet? <laughs> right. The inherent contradictions are really quite something. And, and we've really been hell-bent on this idea that plants are miracle foods and, and scientists are on this giant snipe hunt to try to show that that's the case. And so this unscientific idea of superfoods is this magical concept that foods contain some kind of anti-aging property beyond the essential nutrients that may or may not be there. And the, you know, the, somehow the miracle is there just to be grabbed and it's this special thing that we're marketing. It's really coming from marketing and now everyone is kind of knuckling under to messages of marketing. And I consider it like fairy dust. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think back, I've always been kind of interested in health. Unfortunately, there was a lot of years I just didn't know any better. But these superfoods came around and, you know, like you said, they get marketed heavy all of a sudden. You know, I've never heard of some of these foods, but now they're superfoods. I have to have them so I can be totally healthy. I've tried them all. I've been consistent with them over long periods of time. Zero results. Nothing. Mm. Not one thing I could say changed when I was eating those foods. Now that I understand them better, Mm. I could probably go back and look at some outcomes and say, oh, no, there were some outcomes. They just weren't good. They weren't good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, the the supposed compounds that are in these superfoods are often these polyphenol compounds, which are now called phytonutrients. But they're not nutrients because they don't nourish us. They don't give us energy. They don't, they don't run the energy system. They don't build tissue. They're, the polyphenols are chemicals with varying degrees of toxicity that the body doesn't like to absorb. But some of the bacteria in the gut will break down and create some metabolites. And so if you have the right mix of bacteria, you might get the right metabolites out of some of them. And if you have the right genetics, you might be able to get some advantages out of them. And that's that whole 
icy situation is where we're saying, wow, this stuff might save you from cancer. This stuff will do this or that. You're going to say, you know, it's complete nonsense. Well, let's think about something else. I even said that it's possible that some of these plants are more like medicine than food. And and I do believe that there's some pretty powerful compounds Mm -hmm. in there, but drugs and, and medicine always have side effects. And I would say the same with these, even though they're natural and they're food, or we could claim they're food, they act more like drugs and there are side effects you need to be aware of. There may be things in those plants that Well, and that drugs will... are meant... Go ahead. Yeah. Drugs aren't taken every day, right. three times a day. Right. The drugs exactly. are used for specific purposes for five to 10 days and then you right. stop. Their original drugs were like purgatives that would help you puke or have diarrhea or like clean you out. You yeah. know, they're, they're meant to help you get over something in the short run. Only in modern modern pharmaceutical profit boardroom plans should drugs be a daily experience. And and why is it? I guess that, we're getting used to that idea that yeah. we should take them every day, and that's not a real drug. Why is it that so many of the drugs people are on actually have really severe time limits that doctors just ignore these days? Yeah. Proton no. pump inhibitors. I think there's they're only supposed to be used for like. 14 days or something, 21 days. I don't think it's much. And I've, I've had to help people yeah. that have been on them for 30 years. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. The whole purple pill deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. Oh, man. So man. now that. Yeah. So this is unethical, really, that the physicians are unaware of the, of the costs of these kinds of oversights or sloppy use of these compounds and letting people be hung up with this is the only solution I can give you Yeah, is this drug that you should only take for two weeks, but go ahead and take it for 10 years. The rest of your life. Yeah. It's awful. I mean, there's so many failings in our general thinking (laughs) and the general idea that the doctor's there to help you with your health. Apparently that is no longer the case. It's not. Yeah, it's not. There was a time I absolutely believe that was true. That that is not the case anymore. There is nothing about our medical system that has anything to do with health. It's a good trauma system, good injury trauma system. But beyond Mm -hmm. that, it's the opposite of a healthcare system. It's keeping us sick. It's been captured by interests of of wealth creation. You know, healthcare really is a charitable kind of operation. It's not something that should be its principal mission should not be to make money for the stockholders. Right. I am a capitalist, so I understand. Fit. Right. I understand everybody's got to make money, but there, there, there are some areas where we should make them less capitalistic. And this is one of them. Now, I'm not for government health care or any of that other stuff. But I'm also, part of the problem is we have a government that's, that's complicit in making people sick. It's, you know, big pharma, big agriculture, big food, and big government. Between those four, we don't stand yeah, much of a well, chance. Yeah, well, big government is, is not distinguishable from big anything. <laughs> oh, you're right. The people who write the bills are, are the lobbyists. You're right. Yeah. You know, and really, it's, and who pays to get you in office as a senator or congressman or whatever? That's, all that money is coming from big money. Yep. It's running the whole political show, both in who gets elected, what they can do once they are elected, and how the bills get written and passed is all this 
big financial game that's happening. So the whole system's been gamed out by profiteers, people who run the money world. And that's certainly, it was government, it was laws that turned what used to be in healthcare, it used to be there was a Catholic hospital, a Presbyterian hospital, a oh, Jewish yeah. hospital, right. a Shriners hospital. They were all they were all charitable organizations until we had public funding of healthcare, and now you had enough stream of money where consistently patients could bring money to cover the cost, where you could now turn it into a for-profit organization. But it wasn't until Medicaid and Medicare we could make healthcare profitable because. Sick people don't have a lot of money. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even thought about that whole side of the topic. Hey, something just occurred totally. Yeah, off. I mentioned that in my book, Toxic Superfoods, when I talk about, you know, what happened to healthcare and why don't yeah. we know about oxalates? Well, I talk a little bit about the demise of healthcare relative to that. Yeah, a good point. This is totally off topic. I just thought of this as you were speaking. I'm kind of thinking, I kind of sort of know where you are in the country. How close are you to the Delaware River? I would guess that I'm three and a half hour drive, three hour drive. that far? Okay. I was trying to, I know it kind of heads. across D.C. I'm south of D.C. by an hour or two hours south of D.C. Yeah, okay. I thought it all came down that way, but maybe not. I don't know my river. I know. Maybe I'm, I'm just bad at geography. Well, I, I we're think we're that on it, the whole Potomac watershed. There's a giant, you okay. know, um, Chesapeake Bay watershed that's shared from central New York in Ohio all the way down. That's, that's to what Virginia. I, that's what I North thought, North. and that's why I was thinking of the Delaware River straight north from you and up near Philadelphia. In the Delaware River, they dumped yeah. eight thousand gallons of chemicals just now recently <gasps> no way and it was from a plant that produces latex so we are talking multiple chemicals chemicals not just one multiple chemicals some of the same stuff that was in east palestine eight thousand gallons and they immediately came out and told people in philadelphia not to drink the water well there's a lot of people in philadelphia Guess what happened to the grocery stores? They had a run on water. There is no water anywhere to be found. So then the officials came out and said, oh, we checked again. It's okay. Go ahead and drink it. Mm. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we get oysters. We can buy oysters once or twice a week that are raised in the Chesapeake Bay. So might want to check on that. Now, do we stop? Yeah. You might want to check and see if that, those watersheds, Combine so anywhere. many of these fishery areas, the Gulf gets nailed with oil spills and various problems. And we're really being sloppy with our chemistry, really. And that's, again, we've let companies, we don't have the resources to really police the chemicals that are moving around, that are being used, and, and keep these, these handlers of these chemicals t- careful. And what I'm, I'm afraid of with these chemicals, they, are, they refer to them as forever chemicals. They don't break down. Oh, these my. do not go away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. 
so since we have spent So this- when they talk about using mushrooms to break down Superfund sites with some of these kind of chemicals, but that's more in a terra firma situation, not right. necessarily aquatic. Aquatic is so special, so complex. It is. So yeah. fluid, yeah. literally. <laughs> yeah, good wow. point. So since we've spent uh, a good part of today and a good part of the series just kind of damning plant foods and vegetables, maybe we should explain a little bit. I do like vegetables. I have a big garden. There's some vegetables I love. Tomatoes, peas, absolutely love garden peas, cabbage. I like plant foods in my diet. No, they're not all that healthy for me. I don't eat them because I think they're healthy. I eat them because I like them. They're the variety, the flavor, the crunch, the freshness. I like the whole garden thing. I end up giving away most of what I grow because I just wouldn't eat that much of it. Let's talk about how we can integrate plants into our diet safely. How would you approach that concept? Well, it depends on the type of plants. You know, there's leafy plants and stems and things that are plant plants. And then there's the seeds of plants. And the seeds of plants need very careful consideration in how you handle them. And so there's the things like the grains with the various anti-nutrients and the indigestibility of seeds generally. Seeds are dormant, future, tree, bush, grass, whatever. And those, those are really designed to be consumed and not digested. So they have a lot of anti-everything when it comes to your digestive tract. So mostly they need to be soaked and or sprouted it's long enough soak that they break dormancy, they break into this germination phase. It really changes their chemistry, makes them much safer. But then there's still lectins despite a three and a half day soak where it's broken, broken the dormancy, you still need high, high heat for beans and other lectin-containing foods, particularly the beans, though. And certain beans are so high in oxalates that no amount of <laughs> right. pressure cooking or soaking will fix that. So there's a subset of beans that are low enough in oxalate that if you properly soak and high heat them, you can have those. So that's black-eyed peas and butter beans and mung beans and just a small handful, mostly the peas, like the chickpeas aren't bad. Whereas the standard beans are full of nasty stuff, especially oxalate, and are better off just not used. Or, you know, like they make a poisson sauce or these fermented things in China where they use small amounts of beans to make these right. flavor sauces. They're not making piles of them and piling up giant burritos right. worth of beans. <laughs> so, they, you know, they can be used in these small kind of ways where they're not going to really add up to too much damage, especially when you've done all that fermentation and so on. But so that's like the beans. The nuts really are pretty scary. They they don't really do well when you pressure cook them and boil them. Like what are you going to have left when you soak them for right. three days and boil them? Not culinarily of interest anymore. So one of the things I'll, I'll take a step back, um, you know, with our listeners here and, and our approach to things, we, there are a couple things we've decided on. You know, we're, we're very heavy animal product. We're, we're big into regenerative animals, not the stuff you're buying at the grocery store. We want the animal to be raised right. It's good for the animal, good for us, good for the planet. The other thing we're pretty adamant about, we're grain-free completely. I am, my, you know, the family is. We, if I had a client come to us and want to do a consult, and I've had it happen, if they're not grain-free, we won't work with them. And I'm not trying to be, you know, an asshole about it. It's just, 
work with somebody to try to make them healthy if they're eating grains. I think grains are that destructive to their health that there's not much I can do for them. So we just eliminate the grains completely. I mean, we talked about the fact that if you get the right, you know, ancient grain, don't use the modern wheat, use ancient grains or ancient wheat. If you soak and sprout it and then ferment it and do something like a sourdough, that you can eliminate a lot of these problems. What do we have when we're done? We've put in an awful lot of work. There's still no real nutrition to this stuff. That's just not worth it for me. And you're still getting some of those things. It's an entertainment food. You torture yourself for the end of that. Really, for the amount of work that goes into it, really worth the bother. No. Couldn't you just simplify (laughs) your need for bread? It's just not. I mean, some people got to have bread, uh, make a hamburger, hamburger. This is like, I just have more important things in my life than to worry about whether there's bread around my hamburger or not. Yep. But, you know, I think, you know, really getting clear about what you mean by grains, people think that supposed pseudo grains are better, which is some of the ancient grains, amaranth, quinoa, teff, buckwheat. These are worse in terms of oxalate. They're all terribly high in oxalate and they're a nightmare. People, when they go gluten free, start using these pseudo grains and it's much higher in oxalate. So people often, when they start having health problems, they go off the dairy foods. And they go off the gluten and they start using these pseudo grains and other uh, gluten-free things like arrowroot and they're all high in oxalate. And without the dairy calcium, that high oxalate is like oxalate on steroids. So you really get yourself in trouble trying to get around the problems of the standard grain, which is wheat. And you can go from the frying pan into the fire. So really saying this whole thing of these seeds, these starchy seeds that we like to turn into bread-like substances is a problem concept for us, unfortunately. Even though culturally we're addicted to them, the Bible says that bread is the staff of life, we're very um, embedded in the idea of the burrito and the the hand. And it's partly we love finger food. We want to be able to pick up our food and eat it. You know, I don't have a problem. bread lets do that. I don't have a problem picking up a ribeye and eating it if I have to. <laughs> I know, and same with a nice like pork rib. <laughs> right. We had some spare ribs last yeah, night that were fine without That's any right. bread. That's right. Yeah, I can I have no yeah. I thought when I first heard this idea that you're not gonna eat any grains and I started thinking, wait a minute, that's bread and bagels and pasta and <laughs> rice and how am I gonna do this? And I didn't think I'd be able to. It, it's just not that big of a deal. I don't miss any of that stuff. Well, and some people, they can just abruptly shift from this culture where this is embedded part of every meal and suddenly it's not there. But most people, come on, they need a year or two to like get over the whole cultural habit of having yeah. you know, bread. You find, a, find some safer substitutes and kind of wean yourself off and, you know, not that big of a deal. Um, I had another- Do you have to eat enough? Of this other stuff, this sort of right. hunted stuff helps to make you feel satiated and, and nourished and not need it. That's another key. I'm glad you brought that point up. You know, when I was eating the standard American diet and you wake up and you're immediately hungry, so you eat breakfast because we were told mm-hmm. that's the most important food of the day or the meal of the day. That was another lie. And then around 10 o'clock, I'm hungry, even though I ate breakfast at 8 at 10 or 10.30, I'm mm-hmm. hungry, so I'm looking for a snack. After the snack, I can't wait for lunch. 
after lunch, I got to figure out what I'm going to eat before dinner gets around because I'm hungry. And then did. So when you start thinking about all, it's like we ate all day. And then you think, how would I ever do without all this food? But when you figure out you can eat, you know, 12 ounce ribeye and three or four poached eggs for breakfast, and you may not eat the rest of the day, then who cares? Mm -hmm. It's just not that big of a deal. Yeah, and again, though, it's not a big deal when you get as far as you've gotten, but the beginning for people, oh, yeah. it completely unearths their daily rituals. You know, oh, people does. get, oh, I do this before work, <laughs> yeah, and then there's coffee hour with donuts at 10, yeah, right. and then we go out for lunch, and then I grab this, this paleo bar or chocolate bar when I'm leaving the office and going home, and then at home, you know, I'm having something while I'm cooking dinner. And then after dinner, I'm having chocolate ice cream or popcorn or something. You know, it's like, yeah. it's a rhythm of your day. And some people get hung up on this. That's how they end up being fat. They end up with the habit of eating while watching TV together as a couple time. They might do an hour and a half of a show or something after dinner and hang out and have this habit of we always have popcorn or shortbread or whatever. And, you know, you have to bust through that whole thing and say, you know what, I have to reinvent my life and, and unplug from these rituals and habits that are not just mine, but are shared by most people I know. And this is a big deal. Really good point. But you it's know, fun. And, I mean, yeah. just getting yourself free from yeah. all of that and just going, yeah. you know what, I'm going to do it my way. Listen to my body. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to matter in a different kind of way. It's quite liberating, but it, it's a journey for people to get past the sort of pseudo safety of doing what we've always done yeah, and the doing habits, what everyone else is doing. Habits are a big thing, no doubt, almost like rituals. And, you know, since this podcast has been renamed Oxalates and Philosophy, have you, have you seen this trend? <laughs> the whole TikTok thing is kind of making me crazy because it's, you know, Chinese and there's all kinds of things going on with TikTok itself. I think it's horrible for our kids. But have you seen this trend on TikTok around, I don't even know what to call this, on like celebrating obesity? Oh. There's a mm. huge trend on TikTok. So they will create these videos and they're all short. That's the whole TikTok thing. The only reason I see them, I'm not on TikTok, by the way. Don't have the app, never been on it. I've not at oh, all. Oh, wow. I see them on Twitter. They get posted on Twitter. I would never put this app on my phone or my computer, but um, I see them on Twitter. So I've seen a bunch of these. There's a lot of them, and they seem to be getting more popular. And it will be somebody, and I hate to pick on women here, but for some reason, it seems to be primarily women. I don't know if I've seen a man do this yet. So these people are morbidly obese. We're not talking about, you know, the average American who might be carrying 40 extra pounds or whatever the number is these days. We're talking morbidly obese. We're talking about people 350, 450, 500 pounds making these videos, but they actually some of them, they're just gorging themselves. Like, who the hell wants to watch that? And they're, they're justifying the fact that they are beautiful and healthy. Well, you might call this a toxic delusion. Yeah, yeah. And really Sad. interesting how we want to normalize, we want to normalize all the illness around us. We want to normalize all the things that are happening. We want to make... You know, getting cancer is now a badge of honor. 
instead of, oh my gosh, what are we doing that we're still yeah. getting cancer at this rate? Yeah. It's, it's something we, we really must look at with concern about the decay of our sense of standards of what human life is supposed to be like, how pain-free we're meant to be, and, and how agile and able we're meant to be, and how much joy we get out of finding that like we're capable of and not being saying, I can settle for sore knees and barely being able to fit into the seat in an airplane and and struggling yeah. to get in and out of a car, and I can settle for this, and this is beautiful. Um, it's heartbreaking. It is. It really is. It's just sad. You think about what their life is like, how miserable the day must be. I mean, I'm pretty healthy. You're pretty healthy. And we both know that you have an off day, and it screws up everything. It does. It does. I mean, it's really... And you just, you lose your sense of momentum in yeah. life when you cannot keep your balls in the air. You can't follow through on your hopes and plans. And uh, you were continuously creating our lives and, and doing things today that makes tomorrow work better. You know, today I might do my laundry so I can go to yoga class tomorrow with clean yoga clothes. You know, like this, <laughs> everything's connecting. And right. this, this sort of, this activity line that we're doing in our daily lives is keeping everything going. And if I feel too ill today to do my laundry, that screws up my yoga class tomorrow or, you know, whatever. Teenagers suffer from this a lot because they're, whatever's going on with their brains and their development, they often like leave their homework to last minute or leave it at home and forget it or don't have any clean underwear anymore and like have to like do without, you know, like, yeah. Nobody really wants to say that in that kind of my life is barely working and I'm like falling apart. No, <laughs> Nobody it, wants to live like that. That doesn't, it, yeah, doesn't it's reinforce almost, your sense of dignity. used to be that, you know, if you had that life, I guess you either suffered through it or you finally got to the point where, you know, your life was miserable enough that it forced you to change. That's usually when people will change and make things better when it gets miserable enough. The problem here is instead of, admitting that it's miserable so you will finally change they're they're justifying it and making it okay and what's sad about that is they will never change their brain won't let them change once you start defending something like that you're never going to change it because then you would be wrong and we don't like to be wrong as humans so when i see people defending these things or justifying these health issues that are so wrong and so destructive, it's, it's just sad. I just think that there may not be any hope for that person if they keep thinking this way. Well, in, in this part of this wider philosophy that's becoming so the rage now of accepting whatever and endorsing whatever, and therefore you're saying that it's wrong to endorse illness and pretend that it's okay to be, you know, suffering and pretending I'm not suffering. Right. Like, to say it's wrong is not acceptable anymore. And I, so know. This is a, I know. I know. I end really up being the bad guy. terrible cycle. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I'm so the bad guy because I was trying to help somebody. for us grown-ups. Us grown-ups, we really do have to have a spine and really do have to say, you know what, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to agree with that. We yep. do not have to agree with that. It might seem like it's PC to say, oh, let's embrace fat people. It's not no. the person we're rejecting. It's the it's concept. Correct. It's okay to allow people to get in this kind of state and then 
have it be okay. Because, you know, by the way, we'll do bariatric surgery when you're ready. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about kids and family and, and, you know, sex and all those other things earlier when we were talking about health. These people can't have children. Right. There's so many things that are being robbed from them. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it's it's very sad. We really do need to stop and look around and see how much suffering is around us. We have a huge epidemic of drug abuse because people are suffering with depression so massively and just generally feeling demoralized and unhappy. And a lot of this is nutrition. This is is. where it takes us. It takes us to become drug dependent, whether it's street drugs and suddenly we have a drug overdose next door, kid dies from fentanyl contamination, whatever. Like this is becoming normal. Isn't it? And this is the world of raising kids on Skittles and Pop-Tarts. Yeah. Uh, But it's colorful. They're eating the rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so we really do need standards. We really do need somehow to say, you know what? I'm not bringing pink cupcakes to kindergarten. And my kid is not going to eat know. your pink cupcakes. Right. Like, we need to start early and stop, right. you know, colored Gatorade at Little League. No, we're going to give so, them something else. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of funny. I, I coached sport that I never played. I ended up coaching soccer. When my son was young, I got roped into it. And the rate, the way it happened was I signed him up for his first year of soccer. I don't know, he was six. He was young. Soccer's a great game for little kids. They get to run around. So I sign him up and he's so excited. And, you know, we go buy his stuff and he's practicing in the backyard and I'm helping him. And we get the call a couple of weeks later, a week before the teams are supposed to get together and start practicing. And all the teams are full and they have... 14 or 15 kids left over that didn't get put on a team, but they have no coach. (sighs) All right. I know nothing about soccer. I've never played, but they're six-year-olds. How hard can (laughs) this be, right? So I I started coaching soccer. I was still coaching soccer when those kids were 18. And it's a whole lot more difficult to coach kids that have been playing the game for 12 years. It was a little challenging. But I was right next to a university, University of Central Florida. So I went over there and talked to some of their soccer players at the college and got them to come out and do clinics with me to teach the, the technical skills that I didn't know. I actually turned out to be a pretty good coach overall. I just didn't know how to play soccer. I wasn't helping them much with the, the technical stuff. But, and then I also coached wrestling, which I really knew a lot about. That was really my sport. So it was interesting to see the difference in soccer. It's, it's, it's all this stuff of, you know, pink cupcakes and green Gatorade and all this crap afterwards. Mm. And, and when I would say something about it, I'd be like, look, you know, this was, this was a couple hours. It's not like these kids have to have food. They'll be fine when you get home. Or, or if we're going to do this, can we do something a little healthier than all this junk? And man, oh man, did I get pushback. Oh, it's only once in a while. It's not that big of a deal. What's that? <laughs> it wrestling once in a while. I it, love that I, one. <laughs> I know it's not once in a while. It's every <laughs> damn day nonsense. now, right? It's every day. And, and the funny once thing was, wrestling was the exact opposite. When I said that about wrestling to the parents, yeah. they were all like, "Absolutely, no problem. We're not going to do any of that junk." It was 
night and day, the difference between those two sports. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Man, I I had a painful thought that, you know, we talk about the soccer moms and we never talk about the wrestling moms. No. (laughs) The wrestling dads. No, we don't. Wrestling um, so is I just a, wonder a if it's unique sport. The baking mother who, who feels that if she makes pink cupcakes, that's true support for her kids. Like, this is my way of being a mom. It's sort of interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it's all good intentions, but we know what good intentions lead to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's a lot of room for examining our culture and stepping back and saying, you know what, I I don't have to keep buying into the culture as it continues to dissolve into more and more acceptance of terrible food, terrible health, unhappiness generally, purple pills indefinitely. Like there's got to be a point where we finally say enough. And, you know, looking at like the oxalate poisoning thing, this is a great opportunity. Like, Okay, this health food movement is making people sick. Yeah. The gluten-free movement is making people sick. (laughs) The paleo movement is making people sick. The keto movement is making people sick. All of them are so invested in the financial and the ego investment and and not being wrong, like you said, that nobody wants to look at the oxalate piece. But if you start looking at the oxalate piece, it helps you break apart and see what's going on in a really fresh way. It's very liberating, and you really can like start standing on what's good for me truly and start orienting your life in a healthier direction. It's fantastic. So it's a great example of when things go wrong, you can turn lemons into lemonade and actually really finally learn. Like you said, you know, get something gets bad enough, and we become receptive to the lesson at last. You said something that just um, clicked for me. We, I've talked a lot about, we started off promoting more of a paleo diet than anything. Hunter-gatherer foods, we really weren't worried about carb counts and some of those other things. And we got results, clearly. You move from the standard American diet to almost anything else, and you'll probably see some good results. We, we saw a lot of good results. And then we started noticing some problems. You know, some people weren't responding all that well. Some people weren't losing the weight. Their blood sugar wasn't under control because we realized you could still be eating a lot of insulin driving foods on a paleo diet or a hunter-gatherer diet. So we had to start paying attention to that. So then we started doing more keto. The downside to keto is what you just talked about. Anything you find in the store that says keto on it is probably garbage. They're probably hiding Mm -hmm. 10 other things you shouldn't be eating. And I tried to tell people keto, just saying keto does not mean that it's a healthy diet. You could eat a garbage keto diet. It's not hard at all. Whereas paleo really kind of did tell you what food you should be eating and, and the quality of it. So it was a little closer to a healthier diet. Keto could be Total garbage. But if it's you so full to. of the high oxalate food. That was the, the problem paleo with paleo. People love right. their nuts and potatoes and, and spinach. Pot- right, right. So the keto right. had the problem of the labels and the junk, and, and you could eat high fat, but if it's bad fat, that's not going to be a good thing. So we looked at all these diets, and they all can work. They all start to get a little complicated, and then you have to explain all these other issues to people and why you got to watch out for this. And it just dawned on me as you were talking why I think we have so much success with carnivore. 
Carnivore doesn't have any of these problems. Cuts to the chase. Yeah, it doesn't have any of these problems. I don't have to worry about somebody walking through the grocery store picking up a bunch of products that say carnivore on them. If it's carnivore in the grocery store, yeah. it's an animal product. And the only yep. issue then they're not that marketed. I, right. And the only issue then I have is I do try to convince people that at some point you want to the quality of these animal products you're eating and maybe not be buying them at the grocery store. But I'd much rather see people do that than what they're eating every day now. No question about it. I mean, you can get decent cheeses. They're real cheese. And most beef is good, is decent beef. I think the biggest problem with beef is it's sitting on styrofoam. I would never buy anything (laughs) sitting on styrofoam. Yeah. 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 No. So you go to, you go to the, either the frozen or or that shrink wrap, small plastic container, but it's best if you have a, a store that does fresh ground meat and can give you a chunk of fresh ground meat. You yeah. Know, that's nice. But yeah. you don't have that. You can, you can go to Walmart and get organic beef in a little pack. It's easy without the styrofoam. Uh, yep. There yeah, you styrene. Go. I'm really unhappy about styrene being in every baby, every, every placenta, every uh, umbilical cord is loaded with styrene and other yeah. These chemicals. It's not good for babies. It's not good for the future of humanity. Good really, point. I mean, this is something that's lost on a lot of people. We have to be invested in the health of teenagers. Their gonads are the future. And they need to start caring about protecting those gametes, especially the girls. Those little eggs were formed in her mother's body. Oh, it was really yeah. the grandmother's diet that's affecting the female, which carries all the mitochondria, all the mitochondrial genes are coming from grandma. And we need to protect that. Those, those teenagers need to care about their, these germs that become the human beings. These are human beings hanging out in these little ovaries. (laughs) Don't get me started. We're going to end back up in the oxalates and philosophy again here. I actually have a book recommendation for you around this topic. So you know how we've heard most of our life, you and I, we've heard that there's too many people, right? We're going to destroy the planet with overpopulation. We can't possibly support all these people. And we've heard that over and over and over. This book says the exact opposite, that our biggest problems in the next 50 to 100 years, our biggest problems are going to be because we don't have enough people on the planet. That, you know, when the Chinese, you know, started limiting babies and, and our family size in this country went way, way down. And the, all of the, the developing world is having far, far fewer babies. The, the, whole, the book says that that will, is going to destroy our world economy. There are not enough people to support the world economy we've built, and we will end up going backwards in our economies. Well, you know, and what's really even more important than numbers is able-bodied Health. people who think well, who can yeah, actually work. Yeah. We can't keep having autistic children, Down syndrome children, children who need constant care, and people who fritz out in their productivity by the time they're 40. We, we really need healthy. If The numbers wouldn't matter as much if everybody was healthy and wasn't a patient. That's a but really But if you're born point. a patient and going to stay a patient your whole life, that's what's really important yeah. is the health of the population. 
Yeah, and that you, is clearly degenerating. You and I have seen the difference between somebody who's, we just talked about it. When you're sick, even a little sick, your productivity yeah. goes way down. If you're always sick, if you've got, you know, all of these autoimmune conditions that cause so many issues and you're in and out of doctors all the time and you don't feel good and you're right. That is a really good point that we may have people and they may be at the job, but they're not very productive. And you look around at the way people think these days and you know their brain's not right. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see that really with the long-term vegans where they can't have a rational conversation. Their poor brain is struggling so much. Yeah. You know, on the starvation from the animal fats, the animal fats are so important brain development and that's very true of fetuses like we really need choline in the eggs for fetuses we need animal foods in the female diet these teenage girls who are getting ready to be mothers they need to know that they need animal foods but they're the ones who are going vegan at age 12 or younger and insisting on it and then trying to reproduce as vegans and this this trend is only one percent of the population right now but it's getting a lot of airplay and everyone's saying that they're vegan or going vegan or plant-based and it's not working. And we need to call that out. Yeah, I try. Although I've given up trying to talk directly to them. That's just a total waste of time. You can't, like you said, you you just can't have a (laughs) rational conversation. Um, You know, one of the things I'm, as we're about to wrap this up and kind of give somebody the blueprint, you know, for all of this information, how do we bring this down to how are you going to use this in your life? And I I realized something a lot of times I even said earlier, as, as a practice, I won't work with somebody who's still eating grains. It's just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I've got a strong belief in you're you're just not going to be healthy if you're eating grains. So if you're going to eat those, you need to go find another practitioner to work with. I've, I've told people over and over and over, people will call me and they'll want to s- supplement for a certain symptom. And I'll, I'll ask them about their diet. Well, I just kind of eat mm-hmm. whatever. And I'll say, look, don't buy this supplement. I don't want your money because it's not going to do you any good. If you continue to eat that way, there isn't a supplement on the planet that's going to make you any healthier. So a lot of times I almost take this all or nothing approach And some people say, well, you could help more people if you were willing to, you know, not be so strict. I don't think I could. I think I'd end up wasting a lot of my time with people who aren't really serious about getting healthy. Although I could say with this issue, no matter what somebody's diet is, paying attention to oxalates, knowing what they are, knowing the damage, we've explained all of that. Now we're going to explain, you know, what safe amount might might be or what kind of foods, plant foods you could be eating without worrying too much. I think this is advice that could help anybody no matter where they are with their health or where they are with their diet. And that's pretty unusual for me. Usually I'm like, look, you're either going to do it our way or you should go find somebody else kind of militant about that, but this is an area where I could talk to anybody eating any diet and help them with this issue. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Anybody in any phase of life and any diet style, if they would cut the worst offenders and oxalates, they're going to do better. It's going to be a significant improvement. And then if you get serious about really paying attention to your oxalate exposure, amazing things can start happening and do. 
Well, one of the it's things phenomenal. that can start happening is this may be the trigger for somebody. Maybe they're not ready to hear about this carnivore diet that sounds so extreme or this keto with all fat or, you know, paleo or, but once they start paying attention to oxalates and they start dropping some of those foods, they will start feeling better. Like you said, they will get results. We know they will. At some point, they're already it's, it's moving It's like a themselves. garden gate. You yeah. open this gate yeah. of oxalates and your body starts teaching you things and the body starts leading you in the right direction. And eventually you may end up carnivore because oxalates are showing you how much plants are messing with your body. That's what I'm thinking, that this may be like a, uh, could we call this the, the gateway drug? The gateway drug to happiness. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there you go. So I like this. I, yeah, I think it's this really is... important. It's so important. It means basically getting off the almonds and the other nuts, like the peanuts and the cashews, getting off the spinach and the chard, and don't mess around with all that dark chocolate and the sweet potatoes and potatoes everywhere. It's just really not a huge list. Start you know, eating those out of your life. I know. Every time you say dark chocolate, my heart hurts. Oh, yeah, but, you know, you're a carnivore, so you don't care. I know. You can I live know. without bread. You can live I without I can easily chocolate. live without bread. But you can still actually, once you get control of your oxalate exposure, you can pull back in or maintain some of these little special foods like the chocolate and, you know, in the form of a small that's batch what I'm of looking chocolate forward chips to. versus yes. like, yeah. And I don't, yeah. I don't so you, There's ever... room for those things, including the high oxalate spices and you know, olives and things that if you were eating by the cup load on top of the high oxalate diet would be terrible. But in the context of a carnivore diet, right. you can use the high oxalate spices, you can use the olives, you can use occasional bites of sweet potato or whatever. You can have some of these high oxalate foods because it's not about an allergy. It's not about like gluten where you have to be 100% perfect at all times. With this, the oxalates, it's a poisoning problem. You yeah, have to lower is, the dose. And right. then you can start playing around with lower doses and get away with it. And sometimes it's advantageous to maintain a little bit of oxalate in the diet. That, that's what I like about this approach. You know, I, and I have done that in, in my own life now that I've understood this. I've looked at all the high or medium oxalate foods I was eating and said, okay, look, I really don't care about those. I mean, yeah, I eat them, but it would be a big deal if I didn't eat them. And once I eliminated those and I started looking at the numbers and I'm like, well, look, I've plenty of room for some chocolate today or, you know, maybe I'll eat a half a sweet potato tomorrow because I grew some in the garden. And so I, I do like that. It's, it's not an allergy. You don't have to totally avoid these, but you've got to be aware that there's, there, there's a lot of them around and you need to manage it. So if we were to... Yeah, consistently manage it too. Yeah, because if you yeah. start going really well oxalate and you have the history, I mean, you have to start with this reflection on your diet history and your family health history and your own health history and say, you know, I'm really vulnerable to oxalates because I've been eating them and I've had blood inflammation and I've had some urinary tract issues or, oh yeah, I had bariatric surgery. You really, oh, yeah. really, really need to be on a low oxalate diet. You know, and so then you can say, okay, so now I've really got to take this serious and learn what I'm doing and do it wisely because you're probably loaded with these deposits of oxalate hanging around in your thyroid gland, your pancreas, your bones, your bone marrow, your connective tissues. And these oxalate, calcium oxalate crystals that are 
invisible and tiny. Sometimes they're, they're in something called a lipid crystal. Even your dermatologist and the best pathologist cannot see this in a tissue sample. So it's sometimes invisible to science, but it's there. And when you go low oxalate, it's going to show up. You're going to start releasing this from your tissues, and you're going to be potentially at some point down the road sick on the oxalates you used to eat. Wow. And that's where you really need to know what you're doing. Got it. That's why it's very important to learn this and know what you're doing. And that's why sometimes you need to add in a quarter of a sweet potato or actually it's about three tablespoons. Okay. Or a small bit of chocolate or this or that, some tea. These foods that have some oxygen in them can help you tell the body to leave those deposits alone right now. Quit cleaning up my bone marrow right now. It's too much. I need to slow you down. And the body's listening because the body's smart. Body knows historically in the wintertime it was all hunter, no plant. You every year in the old days, what we talked about in the beginning, this paleolithic life living in the wild under natural circumstances with no trucking industry and no refrigerators, you were not eating many plants in the winter. <laughs> so every yeah. year the body would have a chance to do this cleaning house, but most of us now have never had two days in a row without peanut butter, whole wheat bread potatoes and chocolate. Yeah. Right. So it's a whole different ballgame now that let's blame the trucking industry for this because they brought us the high oxalate diet, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You can only grow so So much of it. We have to know this is a brand new world and learn it. So what let's talk about how we manage oxalates then in our diet. So you talked about going back and looking at your history, your history, your family history. Because all the oxalates you've ever eaten are potentially still a problem. So we want to start there. I, I would assume we, we, we might as well assume that most people have probably eaten way more oxalates in their lifetime than they should have, right? Absolutely. Yep. So that's a pretty safe assumption. So I, I think we could all say, one, we need to read or listen to your book. The, the podcast, by the way, you and I talked about this a little earlier. The podcast is not a replacement for the book. It was never meant to be. We didn't want it to be. The podcast where we just talk about big picture stuff, throw out some philosophy things, kind of get people, you know, comfortable with the topic. But the book, you put a lot of work into the book. You put it in a very specific flow. You have it. You um, talk about things in a very certain way. So to really understand this topic, I'm going to encourage everybody. Go listen to or read the book. It is on uh, Audible, so all of our drivers can listen to it. Sally narrates it herself, which kudos to you, Sally. I think all authors of books that give advice should read their own books. I, I really believe that, and I'm a big believer in audiobooks. Novels, I actually read novels sometimes based on the narrator. The narrator to me is so important in a novel. And I want somebody who's good. On a book that's giving me advice, I want the author to read it. I don't know what it is about that, but I prefer that. I completely agree with you 100%. So I did read it. I knew my listeners and readers would want me to do that. And I hear it's not awful. So if you've gotten this far with the podcast, you'll probably do fine with the audio book. That's right. Yep. But this is this podcast is in addition to not to replace the audiobook. This is to give you more information and maybe help you navigate the book better. So we're going to assume everybody's eaten way too many oxalates in their lifetime. We want them to go read and listen to the book, 
There's a great list. And you're going to also get a PDF with that book too. The PDF is loaded with all these tables. There's tons of tables, including a dosing table in the back that some people overlook. And you're going to get a PDF for that. So there's going to be some non-driving time to be thinking about oxalates and learning and planning. So there's lots of examples in the book of menus and how you reform them and what the high ones look like, what the low ones are. There's a couple places where we have the worst offender tables and the best bets and then them together in, in chapter 14. So there's a lot of resources in there. You're going to use that like a Bible as a reference. So for the home use, you may actually want even a physical copy at home where you can quickly look stuff up because there's a fair amount of reference material to help you learn it. And this also covers the stuff we talked about today and in our other discussions about the whole like, why are we missing this? Well, how come no one's talking about this? <laughs> I try to explain that in here, too. Yeah. And just to- um, so, yeah, so you you do this self-assessment and go, you know, I need to learn this. And then it's really whatever ones you're really hung up on or really just using because you think you should, this is permission you don't have to. You do not have to do spinach. Yeah. You're Good. not required to eat dark leafy greens. You're off the hook on that. Good. Good, because we've been told they're so crazy healthy for us, we should be eating all kinds of them, and that's just not true. And the sicker you are, the more you're supposed to eat them in our minds. You're like, oh, I don't feel good. I guess I better go buy some Better go eat a salad. No, no. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, one other food I was thinking about that I it never dawned on me that I need to watch myself, and I'll bet a lot of other people do, because this food has been, well, it's not a food, it's a drink has become very popular among people who are trying to get healthier. And you you just mentioned the base of it, which sometimes I even forget, kombucha. Yeah. There's, there's an awful lot of kombucha well, luckily, being drinking kombucha, this, these days. Now, it is fermented. Yeah, you can so really overdo help, kombucha. Right? You can overdo kombucha. Kombucha has a little lower oxalate than tea itself, although you start with a very strong, almost double-strength tea when you make kombucha. And um, you then the fermentation probably lowers it. Um, so that's one place where fermentation does seem to lower oxalates is in these sort of medium-ish things with the with the kombucha. So you might want to limit, yeah, the amount of kombucha you're having. Yeah, yeah. what it, nothing. But kombucha is just... not so high that it's not something you start worrying about. You start with the really worst yeah, offenders, right. which is your peanut butter, your Swiss chard, your potato habit. The spinach, you know, if you can get rid of the spinach chard and beet greens and get rid of the potatoes and sweet potatoes and really cut back on the chocolate, you're, you've already done a lot. Excellent. Excellent. So let's use me as an example. So first 51 or so years, a, a healthier version of the standard American diet. What I mean by that is my mom liked to cook. So I got a lot of, you know, food made from scratch as a kid, didn't eat a lot of processed food, not as much as as the average American maybe. And then myself as an adult, I started cooking when I was a teenager. So I, I say my version was probably healthier, not because I was avoiding grains or bad seed oils or any of that other stuff. I didn't know anything about that. It's just that I was making more food from scratch than the average person. And I was active and yeah, less pop tarts, yeah, less uh, 
Yeah, I still ate still very and, fake you know, croissants. Right, but not as many, <laughs> and not I didn't eat out as much as most people do because I less just, French fries. Yeah, yeah, I just prefer to cook myself. So say a slightly healthier version for 50 years, then, you know, started grain-free, then kind of paleo, then pretty heavy keto for a lot of years, and now mostly carnivore-ish. My, my diet is primarily animal products, eat a lot of them, but I do like vegetables, and I want chocolate once in a while, and I do have, you know, one serving of kombucha most days. So How would I manage this to be as healthy as possible? Where do I start? What kind of limits should I watch? Give me some direct advice. Okay, so in the vegetable department, vegetables add a lot of color and texture to the plate. And if they agree with your digestion, then it's a matter of knowing how much of what vegetables you need to restrain. There is a whole family of vegetables that takes up easily 20% of the produce department, and that's the cabbage family vegetables, which is turnips and turnip tops and rutabaga and broccoli and cauliflower and watercress and arugula. That's a huge number of vegetables are in this cabbage family. They all tend to concentrate heavy metals. They tend to be a little hard to digest because of raffinose sugar is indigestible to us, so it causes fermentation and bloating and gas. And so if you have digestive problems, you're going to want to not load up on these low oxalate foods and put radishes and rutabaga and broccoli and cauliflower all in the same meal or same day because you could just be eating cabbage in all its many different shapes and colors. So know about the cabbage family and use them as low oxalate vegetables to tolerance. Let me stop you there then. So of that group... The only one I really Mm -hmm. eat much of anymore is just green cabbage that I grow myself. And I don't have any digestive issues with it whatsoever. And and it's mostly... Green cabbage is delicious and versatile. Versatile. You know, and what I use it... It's very low in oxalate, too. Oh, good. What what I use it mostly for, I make like... I don't even know what to call these. Almost... uh, I'll just take cabbage and I'll chop it up and I'll throw in some tomatoes. And again, I know tomatoes, the issue with those are supposed to be nightshades. Um, I eat a lot of tomatoes. Yeah, and lectin. And I've quit them at times because I've done AIP paleo for, I think I did it for 60 days once. I think I may have even done it for 90 days one year. So I've been without the nightshades completely for extended period of times. I don't notice any difference. I can eat a lot of tomatoes and never see any problems. I can eat no tomatoes and, and not see any real change. So I usually do like a cabbage, tomato, onion um, kind of mix and then, you know, maybe a dressing. And then we use it more of a, as a condiment than anything else. And occasionally I'll ferment that. You know, I'll throw it all together when... So is this, a, is this a salad you're doing no, or is it it's, cooked? It's like, no, it's not cooked. It's all cold and raw or fermented. I will ferment it at times. But it's never cooked. It's usually cold or raw. And I use it as like a condiment or or like a topper on, you know, some ground beef. Like I'll do like a taco bowl and I'll throw that on top. Right. So I can see that as like a little crunchy topping, a little condiment. It's a a tablespoon or two. But raw, raw cabbage family vegetables, especially cabbage itself, have enzymes in it that are said to be harming the thyroid gland. 
So it also is very hard to get a lot of nutrients out of raw vegetables because the cell walls really make that you just don't chew it well enough. So it's really nutritionally, you're not really getting much there uh, until you cook them or ferment them. So that's why, you know, kimchi and, and various types of sauerkraut are classic things to do with cabbage. That's another way to make cabbage a sort of garnish, you know, where you just use a tablespoon or two. And that also is thrown on hot dogs and different kinds right, of foods. Right. The, uh, yeah, I do ferment a lot of garbage. Right. But I, I do eat some of it just raw. So if any listeners are interested in using cabbage, I have about four good cabbage recipes in my PDF cookbook that's on my website, which is sallyknorton.com. I have a just a PDF download of about 180 recipes, about half of which is vegetable recipes. So if you're Wanting to learn how to cook with low oxalate vegetables, that might be a good place to start. Because I absolutely adore various cabbage recipes, so that's why I have four of them in there. But I, my system doesn't tolerate any of the cabbage family anymore, so I don't eat any of them. If you're doing well on the tomatoes and the cabbage, that's fine to continue. But anyone who's got digestive problems and sensitivities, I would not recommend going with raw cabbage family vegetables. A little bit of arugula and a little bit of watercress, those are probably fine, but but head cabbage and radishes and these things, too many of those raw are not great. But, you know, radishes roast up beautifully. Oh, yeah. And kids yeah. love them because they're a finger food. You can cut them in half or quarters, depending on how big they are, and roast them in the oven. And people like to snack on them. Like, I'll do three heads of radishes, and the neighbor kids will eat them in half so- an hour while I'm cooking dinner or whatever. Like, disappear. So you know something else that would be fun with kids then? The other thing about radishes, they are super easy to grow. French breakfast radishes, yeah. a specific variety of radish, a breakfast radish. They grow in, th- right. they mature in 30 days and you can grow them in a pot, any little pot. Stick a couple radish seeds in there with your kids and, and like you said, they're finger food, they're fun. French breakfast radishes are really mild. Grow some, but grow some with them. That'd be fun. And then roast them up. They're really good. Yeah, they're fun. And uh, cucumbers are easily to grow too if you have a little place yeah, for them to climb another. on. Some of these smaller, some of these smaller Asian cabbage greens, tatsoi, and there's uh, several of these little small greens are really easy to grow. Even lettuce will just self-seed. I have lettuce growing in my lawn still. I haven't been yeah. growing vegetables <laughs> for five years. And I still, still occasionally see a lettuce yeah. in my. <laughs> it's really fun. Yeah, so gardening can be fun, but, you know, I, I've gotten, so I've gone back to my flowers mostly, and a few uh, I, fruit trees, and that's it. I added pie. flowers this year, so learning, and I started Yay. everything from seeds, so I doubled the production room in my, my grow house so I can do see, or flowers this year from seed. I'll still do a lot of vegetables, because how about, I have to ask this, garden, like uh, English garden peas. Yeah, so eat the peas itself and not the pod Correct, ty- right. peas. The yeah. pod peas are much higher in oxalate. So yeah, don't do yeah, any but of the those pods. those garden peas don't eat them raw. Do because they're a they're a legume with lectins in them. You want to boil them and cook them. Got it. But the young the young tender ones are the yummy ones. And those if you're are. buying them in a store, look for the baby peas. If you buy frozen baby peas, don't buy standard green peas. They're tough and but boring. I, 
But those those little baby peas are the good tender ones, but you still need to cook them. Yeah, so I have to make a comparison. You you could take a a mature pea, like you said, frozen or in the store. They're not that great. They're okay. Take the baby peas, a huge improvement. Now, take any pea that comes fresh out of the garden, right out of the pod, and you've never experienced anything like it. Peas are kind of like... That's true with asparagus, too. And sweet corn. Not that I eat corn anymore, but when I did... The best corn was always the stuff you got on the side of the road from the farmer who just picked it out of the field that day. The minute you pick corn or peas, the sugar starts to convert to starch immediately. Mm -hmm. So the sooner you Mm -hmm. can eat them after it, like, no joke, when I have peas ready, I have the, I steam them for quite a while, actually. Um, I'll have the water boiling before I walk out to pick them. So that when I pick them, I pick them and they come in and they go right into the water. But you can't describe how good these are. It's like if you've never picked one right out of the garden and eaten it, you know, cooked it and eaten it with, again, it's getting a bunch of butter and some salt and pepper, but they're, they're pretty incredible. They're my favorites. <laughs> All vegetables deserve butter. They have to have butter, right. I know. And you must be good. I never got really great at growing peas. And so I always had the smallest little harvest. But what's really easier than peas is asparagus. Once you get it set up, the purple asparagus is unbelievably good. I have both. And asparagus is tricky. I mean, I I bought three-year crowns, so that helps. But, you know, they come up kind of spotty the first year. This is my second year with asparagus. And every day, sometimes twice a day, I'm walking out there looking to see if anything's poking up yet because it We've been, we've had a cold spring. I think that's why I haven't seen it yet, but my asparagus should come mm-hmm. up any day now. We've had about, I would say, two and a half pounds of asparagus so far this year. Oh, nice. At least. Nice. And it's, it's so lovely. I don't really get along with asparagus anymore. Vegetables and I don't no longer get along, but my husband enjoys it. And it's so easy. Once you get it set up, it's just perennial. Right. And it's so much easier than the peas. So oh. as a spring vegetable, asparagus is the ultimate lazy gardener once you get it established, you know? It, it is. It's a little it bit is. of an investment up front. And we we buried stones to keep the vole and mold from getting in there so that they're not going to ruin the plants. And yeah. it's, it's great. Yeah, oh. so it gets you outside. And gardening is so important because it keeps you in tune with the seasons. And it reminds you there's a time for everything. And you must plant your seeds at the right time. You must weed at the right time. Like, it keeps you in tune with That's a nature's point. rhythms. It's and, really and healthy. And, and you're out there yeah. digging in that soil with all the microbes. And you're getting fresh air and sunshine and activity. And it's it's pretty And you're relaxing. Yeah. When you're thinking about the garden, you're, you're de-stressing. So it's really good, cheap mental therapy. I agree. Excellent. All right, yeah. so back to me. This is about me now. Um, okay, so you're, we're going to contain how much raw cabbage you eat and okay. maybe teach you to eat cabbage occasionally as a cook dish. There's, there's uh, some choices there. So the cabbage family, we're going to have those as low-oxalate foods that we can enjoy as much as we, we really tolerate digestive-wise and so on. And then other vegetables, like we talked about, the peas are good. Half cup, three-quarters of a cup is a reasonable portion if they're cooked. To have, you can throw them in any meal. They go great with a blob of cottage cheese and ham for lunch. Like really quick, easy foods. <laughs> Leftover peas, have them and make them part of your next day. And they decorate salads and do all kinds of things. The romaine lettuce and all the other lettuces are very low in oxalate. 
like a nice base for a meal, as you mentioned before. I like to do like a Caesar style dressing that has lots of Parmesan in it. And then you just throw a bunch of meat or something on it. The real anchovies. I often use anchovy paste because it's quick for my dressing. But I I have a nice recipe that's my daily salad dressing recipe that's lemon, anchovy, garlic, and mustard that's really a a Caesar style. And you use a ton of cheese and everybody like, wow, this is the best salad, best salad I ever (laughs) ate. So good. that's also in that cookbook. So lettuce is fine and you can play with it. It doesn't always have to be a raw salad. People even turn it into soup. But they're all nice and low. All the greens really are pretty low. Even kale and collards, that's more of the cabbage family. They need to be cooked. Um, and in south, you long cook them with, with pork fat. And yeah. so let's see. Now with the, what else we got left? The fruits. Most fruits aren't too terrible in oxalate, but you got to watch out for tangelos and Definitely don't eat star fruit. The blackberries are the highest in oxalate. You know, Raspberries I, are high in oxalate. I love berries, and I am in the middle of the biggest blackberry patch in the world, I swear. I can walk around anywhere where I live, and I could stop at a bush, and I could gather a five-gallon bucket of blackberries Anywhere within 100 yards of my house. They're everywhere here. And I love them. But I found out through your... I would have never thought. For some reason, I would think, oh, berries don't have oxalates. Not only do they have them, but the one that I have easy access to is the highest. It, they're really high. Yes. They're really high. And one way you can work with them is you can turn them into jam that gets rid of the seeds. Like if you put them through the the food mill and get rid of the seeds and the other stuff. Oh. You can lower the oxalate and then use blackberries as a, as a flavoring that you add to sauces, you know, in smaller amounts, you can make little glazes. Oh, like, you wait. know how you do like a sour cherry glaze on duck or something. Wait a minute. So maybe. if you turn it into jam and then use them in small quantities or make a, like a syrup to put on ice cream That's... or something, you can still use them in smaller amounts, but having giant bowls full or smoothies full or smoothie bowls full of berries, this is a mistake. Got it. So here's what I did. And I know this at the time, but I didn't know I had so many blackberries. Like I said, I could pick five gallon buckets of them. I did turn them into a syrup. I did use a, a, a strainer to get all the seeds out. So it's a totally smooth syrup. And then I cooked it down and then pressure canned it. So now I can just open a jar whenever and I've got this like, you know, blackberry syrup that I know it's organic. They were growing out in the wild. Um, but I thought, you know, with all these oxalates, I better go easy on these. But you just told me I at least did some things right. Yeah, you did some things right. And in small amounts, you can get away with it. So that's very different than throwing cups and cups in a, in a blender and eating yeah. them just raw, all unprocessed. Yeah. You know how we usually yeah. use the syrup? I'll usually, like I make my own yogurt. I make a really, really high fat mm-hmm. yogurt. I use um, the base mm. for my yogurt is half, oh my half and half with added heavy cream. So I start with half and oh half. Oh my God. I, I use A2. This is more of a sour cream than it, a yogurt. It, it, it almost <laughs> is. It's got the consistency. A person could live on that. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Sounds great. And I make that plain yeah, with, it's, with it's no divine. added sugar or anything. It's this beautiful high mm. fat. And then I'll put, so if I'm going to have, say, a cup of that yogurt, I'll put a tablespoon of the blackberry sauce on it. 
Yeah. Well, and that's something that high fat is so delicious, and you tend to not eat <laughs> right. that much. Cause, but you can, oh, my God, it's so good. I used to make my own heavy cream-based sour cream when I had the right starter culture that was yeah. to die for. Yeah. Yeah, so good. good. So, yeah, so there's still room for some of these foods. You just have to use them more wisely and consciously. And, yeah, a tablespoon. Of, it's interesting, though. There's not much pectin, I guess, in these berries because it remains a syrup despite you cooking it, it down. It did not turn into a jelly. The only reason it even mm-hmm. thickened was just because I was reducing it. Yeah, there must not be hardly any yeah. pectin in there at all. Interesting. So that's the fruits mainly. And you can, you can, people can check the book out and, and learn this stuff. But uh, yeah, the, let's see, the figs aren't so good. The kiwis are terrible. The, the blackberries, the star fruit. Bananas? And, you know. Bananas are not too bad as far as we know. I think we need more testing on them, but we oh, kind right. of say, well, a regular medium banana is about nine milligrams of oxalate, which is not terrible, but I would eat them in like half of a large banana at a time. I would consider that a serving rather than picking out on tons of them. They're very so, sugary, by the way. Bananas oh, are, are just they are just kerosene for your blood sugar. So when you eat bananas, <laughs> you need to eat them as like a dessert or with butter and oh, fat and slow down. Mine are only eaten as a dessert, usually after dinner, you know, kind of a little bit of carbohydrate. With that yogurt. Either with the <laughs> yogurt, yogurt. Or, or with a, and I know I've got to watch this, a nut butter, usually a walnut butter. So yeah, it's usually oh, got- Oh, that's interesting. That's unusual. We have a great company that makes walnut butters that are just fantastic. And walnuts, one of the lower nuts in oxalates. Yeah, yeah, that's much more moderate than compared to almonds and cashews. And again, walnuts have a very distinctive flavor, and you can use small amounts of them and do some really interesting things with the walnut flavor and recipes. Or again, if a couple teaspoons of this stuff could add an interesting back flavor, and just don't consider them an entree. That's a big issue with nuts. They're not an entree. One of the things I actually use walnut oil for, um, making mayonnaise. You know, and you make your own homemade mayonnaise. Oh, that sounds really Make it with amazing. walnut oil. It is incredible. That was, that was the oil I'm that sure. I found was my favorite. Now, I've also made mayonnaise from bacon fat. That's pretty good, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of I don't know if they go together, but you should try that out. Yeah. And the, the nut oils are very fragile. They, they tend to go rancid, so you have to be they, careful with them. They're very I, perishable. I Keep them, them very cold and use them up. Small, dark bottles. Small quantities. And, yeah, put them in the refrigerator because yep. you're right. They will go rancid quick. Yeah, which is not the case for the large. So, the argument for large what, can sit around a long time. What should my total daily number be? What, what should I be trying to stay under? And should I do it by the day or is it okay to do it by the week? Maybe I had a day where I... Probably. No, it's definitely not okay to do it by the week okay. because every meal needs to be not a trigger dose to trigger new deposits ah. forming in the body. So Perfect. each meal needs to be under 70 milligrams a meal, which is when you start looking at the numbers, that's why we're going to eliminate spinach and some of these worst oh, offenders because yeah. they're but, so high. But you know what? Now that I right. hear that so, number, 70 grams in a meal, now... I tend only milligrams, one, milligrams. milligrams. Okay, thank you. I tend to only eat yeah. one meal a day, and then I might snack here and there. But 
That's kind of encouraging for me because if I stay away from the worst offenders, that this won't be hard for me. No, it isn't that hard. That's the thing. Once you get your wrap your head around it and learn yeah. it, it's not hard. It's just like the foreignness of it makes it a little hard. So it takes there's a learning curve and really starting to learn like in terms of numbers. That's a long thing. We have to go back and keep checking because we misremember stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you want to keep going back to the well and checking. And I'm going to be having a data product come out in a few months where you can download a giant PDF and eventually someday it'll become an app where you can get good Oxley data. Most of Excellent. the Oxley data that's Hi. available is terrible. It's full of errors and mistakes. And, and just briefly, I know we're going to wrap up and go because we're both, I'm running out of time. Hi. I do want to mention about the data. Now that you're asking about numbers and how much you get to have per meal and keeping it under that 70 per meal is, is need to be aiming for. If you're looking for data and numbers, just you can't trust what's out there very well. And wait for mine to come out. It'll be the best we so, can do. I just want to mention that data is tricky. The why data is not very good. There's, I just want to mention this really briefly. The food itself it's not well described or understood and they're not all tested. So not you as a gardener, you know, there's like 50 varieties of peas. That's what I was going to 25 varieties of eggplants. Right. right. They're all variable. So both the varietal differences, the seasonal differences, where and how it's grown, all these things will affect plants physiology and affect how much oxalate are in the plant. And when the scientist runs down to the Laramie, Wyoming co-op and buys a random eggplant, he doesn't really know which seed catalog that was bought from and which seed it is. He doesn't know what kind of eggplant it is. He just calls it an eggplant. And then he doesn't always tell us, did you peel that? Did you cook that? Did you use the seeds or not? You know, what exactly did you test? Well, I have no idea what variety it is. I don't know where it was grown. I don't know how ripe it is. I don't know if it was organic or not. I'm not telling you anything about this food, but by the way, I got this number, so therefore eggplants are this number. Well, that's a big fantasy, and the guy has to be able to do it right. So first of all, we don't know what he tested. Then he does the test. We don't know which technique did he use. Was that the right technique, and is he any good at it? Does he have experience? Did he make a mistake? And then it's the data. Did he collect the right data? Did he not mix up the data? And then the person who handled the data and put it in some chart or table, did they... Add a mistake, which is really easy to do with data. Right. And now you, the end user, you come along, blah, blah, blah. Here I am, new to oxalates. I know nothing about converting. Well, there's this many per 100 grams of food. Therefore, my plate has this many oxalates. You as an end user, do you have any idea what you're doing? (laughs) You can also make data handling mistakes, data interpretation mistakes. So you're working with a random eggplant number that may have nothing to do with the eggplant you bought by a scientist who may have made a mistake, by a, presented to you by a data handler who may have made a mistake, to you, the innocent mass failure who doesn't quite figure out really what you're talking about. <laughs> the problem with worrying about the numbers is that it's kind of a big right. shell game. Well, maybe almost. So that's why I didn't emphasize the numbers. It wasn't room to put a full 90-page table right. in the book itself. So I have a I have like a 10-page table in the back I call the dosing table and various numbers scattered in the book. But then the bigger table will be available on my website. But that doesn't mean that the foods are well described, that we've right. tested them enough, or that, that we have enough data, that even if there was no mistakes in the, in the research approach or the data handling approach, it doesn't mean 
that we have really great data about the food you want to know about. You so know. we talk more about that in the book, but I just want to make sure people are aware there's not one magic number that tells you how much you're eating. Right. And, and it's not accurate. It's a, it's a very, very rough guideline right. at best. And the other, I had two more questions right. for you that I wanted to get to before we wrap this up. And one of them was about that because I can garden and I do garden. I can pick from 237 different tomatoes to grow. If I knew which one yeah. was the lowest oxalate, I would grow oh, that I one. Oh, I do have some. I Well, the lowest oxalate is called the garden peach. Okay. And the garden peach is sort of a peach-sized, sort of smallish, medium tomato that's quite yellow with little peachy shoulders. It gets pink shoulders. And it's pretty mild. It's almost dull in flavor because it's not very acidic because yeah, right. it's so low in oxalic <laughs> acid. Oh, would that... Would so the garden peach is fun because it's a novel fruit. It also, it is a clue, maybe. How tart it is might be. Yeah. But I have, I'm going to send you, Kevin, I will send you my little tomato chart of okay. tomato varieties. And there's, it's, some of the yellow ones are low, some of the yellow ones are really high, they're all over the place. But interestingly, like Hunt's canned tomatoes comes out as low. And I think the, the tomato paste comes out as low, which I think is usually the plum, the Italian plum tomato, I, or the I, pear-shaped. I grow What two, is the name of that little tomato? Well, I grow two plum-type tomatoes. There are a lot of plum-type tomatoes. The most popular for sauce mm-hmm. is San Marzano. San Marzano. So that might be the one they use for tomato paste. It's sort of a pear-shaped, pendulant form. You know, like a three inch at the most. Yeah, I grow, tomato. I grow two, two plum tomatoes. I grow a San Marzano, which is like the Italian classic tomato to make sauce out of. And then I grow with, mm-hmm. uh, an heirloom from the U.S. that's called an Amish paste tomato. Yeah, I don't think the Amish paste is in the testing, and I don't think the San Marzano is, but I'm going to send you this list of the ones that were tested one year. From North Carolina, it was about 20 tomato varieties, maybe 25 varieties, and they are all over the map with Got oxalate. It. But one, the winner in the oxalate was the garden peach. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Right. And that was so, just one season in one state. Yeah. Yeah. But think about the tomato varieties. There are like two oh, or 300 at least. versions of tomato. Right, at least. And how would we test 300 tomatoes it, it, in different seasons grown in different parts of the world? That's and get a guess on it. And then when you buy a tomato, they're not telling you which one it is. No, not in the store. Right? You have no idea what those are. I mean, you can guess, you can look and say, okay, it is a plum variety of tomato, or that's a slicer, you know, we call some slicers, or but that's all. And within mm-hmm. plum tomatoes, mm-hmm. there's, beef steaks and, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's 40 yeah. some varieties. But none of, of those, none of those characteristics tells us anything about no. the oxalate content, which seems it, to be randomly variant behind the scenes under the hood. And we don't know. So I think the ultimate lesson to draw from this is just be moderate with plants. Don't start pouring tomato sauce and tomato and everything. Just use them is delicately and is, you know, with some reverence and some respect and a little bit of arm length <laughs> yeah, so they okay. don't come back and bite you. And it, again, it's another argument for variety. Growing different varieties might actually dilute the ultimate amount you, there you expose go. yourself to. Yeah. So one more question I want to make sure yeah. I get covered and then I'm going to let you kind of wrap this up. And then we'll finish. So 
there's a commercial and a product that just makes me a little crazy. And I, I actually, I was going to buy it and have it tested. And then somebody sent me some because I had mentioned it. So have you seen the product Balance of Nature? What of nature? Balance of Nature. That's the name of oh, the product. Balance of Nature. I'm not sure that I have. What okay. is it all about? So it is, they, it, you buy it in a pair. One bottle of capsules is fruits and the other bottle of capsules is veggies. And mm-hmm. they're, it's some form of freeze drying these vegetables and fruits. And, you know, you're going to get all this nutrition because fruits and vegetables are so mm-hmm. good for us. In the commercial, they talk about the, the line they use all the time. We, we use the very best produce to start with. And the first thing I realize is it's not organic. So <laughs> are you kidding me? You didn't even bother to use organic and you're claiming it's the best. And then you're concentrating this because you're freeze drying it. And you're telling me they even make a big point in their commercial. You could never eat this much produce. Well, maybe that's a clue. Maybe I shouldn't be eating that much produce. So if this is concentrated and it's not organic, aren't all the pesticides and chemicals and heavy metals also concentrated? And what about the Absolutely. And plants are the biggest source of these pesticides, right? We're getting most of the pesticides in our diet through plants and you're concentrating oxalates. If it's just freeze drying, now if it's extracts, if you do an extract of turmeric, for example, you take a very high oxalate spice and you turn it into a no oxalate spice. No, this Same is, with potato starch instead they, of potato flour, but these are not extracts. No, these are dehydrated. They, they must be horse pills. They make it a point to say that these are the whole food. These are not extracts. So let me, oh, um, boy. Let me just go through the list of, um, of what's in here and see what you think. Um, do you have a while? Can I just ask you, can I just interrupt you for sure. a minute? Because uh, honestly, I think the best thing about fruit and vegetables is structured water. You're yeah, getting this point. beautiful water right. that has this, <laughs> this crystalline structure of nature. Wait. And the one really good ingredient in fruits and vegetables they is being away. taken out. That's a good point. Freeze dry. That's a good point. So I'll try to go through this fairly quickly. Stop yeah. me if it gets too long. Broccoli, spinach. Soybean oh, no. seed, green cabbage, wheat, oh, no. wheatgrass, <laughs> kale, cauliflower, oh. celery, white onion, zucchini, garlic, red cabbage, red onion, soybean seed again, carrot root, kale, mm. cayenne pepper, shiitake mushrooms, wheatgrass again, sweet potato, carrot, kale, mm. green onion, cauliflower. Goes, that's, that's in the veggies. So now they're going to take three of these capsules a day and they're telling you you're getting in, I forget the amount of produce that says, they say goes into this, but it's a lot. Wow. No, I, that, this is part of this thick culture of thinking plants are so benign and the more is better. It's just part of this more is better in the plant-based. And Fantasy. The, the the fruit version has a lot of berries. Mm. Yeah. Boy. 
Well, a lot of my clients come to me, and it's amazing. It's not just their diets; it's their supplements are loaded with high oxalate ingredients, yucca root, and thinks about that. Elm, slippery elm, and then the vitamin C turns into oxalate, and so a lot of the supplements and supplemented foods, juices, and energy drinks are loaded with vitamin C that turns into oxalate in the body. But too much collagen turns into oxalate in the body. Even too many fermented foods can increase oxalate in the body. So all the things we think we're doing for our health has potential toxic you be careful. effect. You know, the other thing about this product, and I had talked about, and I actually found a company, I just haven't taken the time to send it out yet, but I'm going to send this out. I want to have it tested for glyphosate. Oh, that'd be fabulous. If you're yeah. concentrating this And 2,4-D and dicamba and curfentrazone. Yeah, I know. There's so many of them now. 2,4-D is now taking over glyphosate and and growing because glyphosate is now, there's so many resistant weeds. Yeah. So they're back to this Agent Orange chemical called 2,4-D, which is part of the defoliation of Vietnam. And a lot of our soldiers came back poisoned from yeah. this stuff. That's what's going on our farmland and in our communities, that's what your local businesses are spraying in the neighborhood is 2,4-D, dicamba, and glyphosate. Yeah. All right. Boy, Sally, this has been a, uh, this has been a world tour of oxalates. We've covered so much great stuff. I've learned a lot from this. How do you want to wrap this all up? Well, I like where we started with just the simple logic of human beings hunted and lived on a lot of animal foods in nature. And if you think about what's in your dietary world that you could just go find in nature, it might give you a new slant on what to eat. I just want to invite people to take this conversation seriously in terms of we need to know about oxalates. If you have people in your family who are struggling with kidney stones, fatigue, osteoporosis, arthritis, sleep problems, weird things that don't go away, carpal tunnel, neck pain, this could be why. The simple answer might be getting rid of the spinach, cutting back on the chocolate. It's so easy. Why not learn this while you still can before things progress to sickness? And we really got to wise up a bit, and this is a great opportunity. So I'm just grateful to you and your listeners for hanging out for this conversation and helping us to think about these ideas. Absolutely. Well, thank you for writing the book. It needed to be done. And I know you're not stopping at the book. You're talking about more resources and more help coming. So we certainly appreciate all that. We appreciate all the time you've spent with us hanging out. It's been a lot of fun. Really fun to hang out with you, Kevin. I'll, I'll be sending you some tomato data and I'll be looking forward to next time we get to see each other. Fantastic. And we will do that somewhere and we'll get you back on the show. Mate, you know what we need to do? And no, no big hurry. I know you've given us a lot of time recently. We love this series. At some point when your schedule allows, let's, let's plan a Q&A. Let's let people go get the book, read the book, oh, listen yeah. to the book, start messing around with this at home you know that's when they'll start to develop all the questions, when they actually start to do this in their life. So if we can, we'll get you back sometime. You can help answer all those. That'd be fun. Fantastic. All right, guys, read right. up, send the questions. Get the book. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> Sally, we will talk to you again soon. Excellent. Be well. Enjoy the garden. Will do. Take care. 
All right, we are going to wrap this up. It's another mini-series in the book. Great information. But again, this mini-series was not a substitute for the book. So much more really good information in the book. This was big picture, very conversational, get you used to the topic. But go get the book, read it, listen to it, and uh, we'll go from there. We'll see you next time. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.